Hi, Mage fans. This is your host, Terry Robinson, with Mage the Podcast. This episode sits kind of in two parts. The first are some notes on the year just passed for the show and Mage in general, and the second is kind of a lost episode. Every once in a while, I'll do an episode that doesn't quite land how I want it to. It doesn't mean it's bad, but that the episode coming out the other end wasn't necessarily what I originally intended, or it turns out what I thought could be covered in a short period of time really deserves much more coverage. This was a conversation I had in 2020 with uh, Noah H. of the Story Told podcast, and we talked about Exalted, Chronicles of Darkness, and role-playing game art. They are a talented artist, and linked to their stuff under their name Icor Teeth is in the show notes. And ultimately, after going back through it, each of those topics wound up getting full episodes that we did, talking about those separately. So I ultimately never aired the episode, but still, it's a fun conversation and is an interesting time capsule from 2020, so that's going to be at the end of this. But first, let's do a little bit of a year interview. This is going to go out December 30th of 2023, and is as close to the year end as I can reasonably manage. We, as a podcast, Mates the Podcast, really expanded on two platforms this year. The first was YouTube, and Joseph, our producer, really did a push to get everything onto YouTube and to get a really nice workflow so that our entire back catalog is there. And those are relatively well-received and receiving between hundreds and thousands, in some weird cases, listens per episode. But because YouTube, it's kind of proven to be an interesting beast. One, it has brought us onto the radar of a few other YouTube people, and we'll see if any projects come out of that. Being subject to YouTube comments has been fascinating. Some people, most people, just say nice things. If it's a nice thing about a particular guest or a topic, I will pass it back to the pertinent person. Uh, some people ask follow-up questions. They weren't cur- sure about something. They're wondering if we covered something else previously. Some of these are a little bit more pointed where it's like, you didn't consider blah de blah and Hunter the Oblivion. I'm like, that's not a game. And I'm pretty good at baking into most of my statements in the show. I am but one humble person and know only so much about the world of darkness. So usually I get to sidestep the most accusative branches of these. The last are wild accusations. One person said I knew nothing about a particular type of game, which is technically accurate, as I don't think I've ever mentioned or talked about that class of games. Uh, That was glorious. That's like someone saying, Terry doesn't know Laotian, which technically true, but I don't know why you would expect me to. The, The second expansion we did was onto Spotify. Spotify tried to really make its podcasting platform a thing this year with mixed success, and we participated in some of their little programs. There was an early push where the show was getting tens of thousands more listeners than it normally did, but to the first, like, five seconds, which is enough time for me to say, hi, Mage fans, or for Adam to say, welcome to Mage the Podcast. I don't know what those people were expecting. We just said the name of the show and they were already on to the next thing. So maybe they just don't like us, which I mean, is fine. That eventually petered out and our uh, performance has kind of uh, gone back to its kind of uh, slow and steady growth. One nice thing that we started getting this year was listenership persistence metrics, which is how long people listen into the episode. And I, I'm very glad to know that most people listen to at least through to the credits. 
shorter episodes tend to have higher listenerships, and we thought about splitting up some of our longer conversations into multiple episodes, but I think when I'm a listener, I absolutely hate those, but that's me. And also, if you break up something, the second episode on a topic usually only gets about 60% of the listens of the first, so you're really back to the same, same spot. Uh, as a show, we also tried to do a couple of big projects this year. One, I have completed my part of, but we are working with uh, another notable person in the the publishing space to to do this project. And I recorded like 30 hours of audio for it and edited a bunch of it. And since I'm not in charge, I don't get to talk about it and I don't get to release it. But when that's out there, I will be very pleased. Another was that we participated heavily at Gen Con running games of Hunter the Reckoning to try and get in on an M5 playtest when M5 when Mage was still theoretically going to be the next or the next game. After that, I spoke with uh, with Renegade. I got a lovely statement of, we continue to work closely with Paradox for how they wish to develop the world of darkness in all of its forms. That that says nothing. That was, that was kind of a bummer. This has not been a great year for our attempts at merch. Uh, we were able to send out some lovely Mage stickers to our executive producers, courtesy of Rusted Icon, the official producer for a bunch of licensed World of Darkness materials. Two other things we were hoping to re- release this year for our executive producers were dice bags and dice trays. We work closely with Rusted Icon, who experienced a absolutely catastrophic loss of production equipment. Rusted Icon has been very generous with Mates the Podcast as a show, and I strongly encourage you grab merch from them if you want anything with world of darkness on it they've run batches of stuff for us for significant discounts as a courtesy and have done even some custom stuff any of our supporters at the one dot wonder level which is to say the oracle level who's received anything has been uh working with them they're still not fully back to capacity yet after after a pretty big loss of production equipment so uh hopefully those items will will get to send those out and our thanks to rusted icon for everything they've done with us and again if you want a mug or a name badge or a sticker with the world of darkness on it in some way shape or form uh, please please go over there i have a full set of mage the ascension sphere shot glasses so every time i make a manhattan it involves an, a little a little entropy whiskey shot which i find entirely appropriate as well as tumblers for all of the traditions so if you ever happen to ask for a glass of water in my house theoretically you could get one of those my dice project is now running approximately 20 months behind schedule uh i was hoping to have those in the year of the 30th anniversary but that's not that's not working out too great. If you are a dice foundry, or you've worked personally with one and would like to try and produce mage themed dice or dice reminiscent of mage, as it were, please reach out to me on the Discord. Maybe we'll see if something can happen. As of this recording, Book of Worlds is slowly in the works. I am pleased uh, to announce that Harry Heckle and Kathy Ryan will. Both be working on that. I am still going through the contracting for the rest of the writing. I received an opportunity late in the year to work on exalted sidereals, which are the best exalt type. I had no idea how wildly time-consuming that project was going to be, as my first step was to read about 800 pages of text, as generally that's my solution to just about anything I'm doing for the first time. Looking back on this, I wrote about uh, 90 words an hour, which is painful for me as with Mage, if I'm just doing setting stuff, I can do three to 5,000 words a day or about 1,500 words in an evening after work. So yeah, that was exalted a little bit slower for me. 
as my spouse described it, exalted seems like that attractive girlfriend who's, you know, difficult. And I think that's an accurate summary. Another project I did this year was I reached out to a number of actual play groups and RPG folks to run Mage the Ascension for them. This was an idea that was recommended to me by an executive producer, and I thought it was a good one. I reached out to ultimately nine people, of which two got back to me, and one of them is in the planning stage. We'll see how that goes, but that is a thing I will continue to look out for in the future. I still would like to do a First Mage Chronicle book and a setting book for Philadelphia to just kind of help people get started with Mage, but again... That's going to take significant time. Hopefully I can dedicate it, but we'll see ultimately what happens. I'm not really going to state any other big plans for 2024 because 2023 taught me some lessons and that to do so is utter hubris. On the episode side, we did three new episode types this year. First was Reality Deviant Book Club, which is something Adam has wanted to do for a long time where he and a guest talk about a book on the recommended reading list for Mage. Those episodes have been reasonably well received. The other type of note is uh, one mic episodes where one person talks for an extended period. Turns out without someone to talk to, you turn into a vocal speed demon. I'm still working on that and will continue working on that if I do any more in the future. This year also expanded beyond Mage for Tomes of Magic, where we talked about Werewolf, Mummy, and Wraith so far. Those episodes have been very well received and we will likely continue to do those if we find appropriate ones that we will talk to in the talk about in the context of mage uh, for the episodes we did do in the last calendar year dark ages mage was our most popular tomes of magic episode followed by project twilight really surprised me on that one outside of tomes of magic the interview that bryce and i did with steve dempsey on the cosmology of william blake and his book on the intersection of cthulhu and the english in the game fearful symmetries by by Pelgrane press was our best non tomes of magic episode and that that made me pleased as punch uh, bryce and i did a lot of preparation for that interview steve was very knowledgeable and had written a really good book and was a great guest and talked to us late into the evening UK time and we were thrilled to share his work. So thank you so much, Steve. And thank you so much, Bryce, for being my co-pilot on that one. Going into 2024, I said I wouldn't talk about projects, but they feel comfortable a little bit more so with this one, is we're likely going to do a team up with Occultist Anonymous on Mage the Awakening. This has been a topic that we've discussed doing before. I don't want to treat it as tomes of magic because at the end of the day, we're about Mage the Ascension. Mage the Awakening, perfectly fine game. It just, I, I don't have as strong a resonance with it as Mage the Ascension. But we will be reading some of the Mage the Awakening books where I think there is a good balance of originality and portability. So materials for games that will work in Mage the Ascension and will work without much modification. My heart goes out to all the fans who've converted the Arcana to Spheres and vice versa, but that's just not my cup of tea. We'll probably talk about the other worlds in the Chronicles of Darkness, some of their interesting antagonists, and some of the unique mage groups that were introduced across 1st and 2nd edition. We may also do an episode where we just go through a one-session prelude for your awakening to reaching your watchtower or in Mage the Ascension, your, your awakening. We'll see how go that goes. The amount of time each episode takes continues to slowly grow. Not fast, but it's still growing. Generally, when we're talking about books, they're they're longer or they may be multiple books. Uh, for instance, right now we're, we're doing a Tomes of Magic that has Adam reading all three of the Werewolf Umbra books. That's a lot of Umbra book. 
Otherwise, our guest episodes tend to involve more research now as we've kind of covered a lot of the easy stuff. I'm going to reach out to my first non-mage academic, as in non-mage, non-RPG academic, someone who has no background in this stuff, to see if I can get them to talk about uh, a real-world magic practice, and we'll see how that goes. Otherwise, I have outlines and notes for about 18 episodes so far this year, and I'm going to say that's a pretty good start. Uh, Starting in February, we're going to go to twice a month through May as I prepare for what is hopefully going to be my last professional exam. There are also tentative plans that we may try and have a formal presence at a convention. That's something that's very much just in the talking and planning phase. And it would probably be something like, hey, Mage the Podcast is going to help run 12 sessions of Mage the Ascension at this particular convention. Again, still still real vague on, on what that's going to look like. Looking at the wider world of Mage, the Ascension, we got M20 Victorian Mage out in our hands. Swell. Lore of the Traditions is technically listed as out to backers, although final books aren't out, and I don't count a book as out until I have Dead Tree in my hand. This means we got 282 pages of new Mage stuff. In the same period, by my count, we got 1,078 pages of stuff from the Storyteller Vault including 270 pages of fiction. So about three times as much work from the community as what is formerly being published. And I think that's great. We're still waiting for the print copies of Lore of the Traditions, the two expansion books, Faces of Magic, and I think what was it, Forgotten and Forbidden Orders, whatever the craft book is, and the two expansions for Victorian, where hopefully everyone gets to see my weird version on the Victorian Umbra. If you're working on a Storyteller Vault project and need help, or you've recently completed one and you want to talk about it, by all means, uh, post it in our Discord, reach out to me. I'd love to have a conversation. We have some great people who are very good at getting projects over the line. And thank you so much to all the people who have guided me in figuring out that process. I have my hopes for 2024 in terms of community content, but I learned my lesson this year in terms of uh, declaring anything ahead of time. Otherwise, I hope you had a happy 2023, and I hope you have a safe and happy 2024. And all I can say is, go change reality. And with that, I'm going to toss it over to the conversation I had with Noah, and then cut back for the outro credits. There is a weird splice in at the end where I include some of Noah and mine pre-conversation, but that's how the episode's going to roll. So, Noah... How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> for, for the listeners, this may or may not be included, but Noah and I just went on like a 20-minute side jag talking about the Glyph RPG, our reskinning of Exalted, and a few other things. We're like the George and Ira Gershwin of the RPG industry, and people just don't know it yet, where we are going oh, to God. revolutionize scene and, and gameplay. But Yes, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We're going we're gonna to throw off the shackles of our existing lives and, and reveal our truer, purer form. Yeah, I mean, of, of the shackles of reality, truly. That's, yes, yeah. yes, which is right a thinly on. veiled reference to PCP. <laughs> so, Noah, you are one of the storytellers at The Story Told. What games have you run for them so far i ran a one shot of wraith the oblivion i ran a four episode long wait four four or five episode long uh geist game and then i ran a demon game just recently which i believe 
would and I think that's fully out now. It is fully out. The aggregate choir, it was a delight to listen to, partially because of the nostalgia of listening to a bunch of people talk that are in the same place at once. And I'm like, oh, I remember yeah. those. Like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, being being in person is a strange privilege. <laughs> yeah of the past a privilege of the past (laughs) the privileges of the past oh yeah it takes place in gray falls it'll be fine yeah um i was thrown off when i saw gray falls and exalted and i'm like oh my god it is everywhere in addition to that you've played a number of old world of darkness and chronicle of darkness games on top of that and our our notional reason to have you on mates the podcast is to talk about the chronicles of darkness system how it differs from world of darkness as well as kind of your thoughts about fantasy art as well as wraith and geist which i i i think the connection between those parts are obvious so i feel no need to to lay them out uh but between the world of darkness and the chronicles of darkness thematically is there a way you would say this one is this thing and this thing is a different thing thematically i i mean i feel like the original the, the world of darkness was to me it has much more of an apocalyptic vibe under running the whole thing like you're almost always going to end up in a situation where the meta story is telling you that the world is going to end soon and these are the end times i, I would say that's like a huge part of it you know you're it, j- just looking at a game like werewolf you've got werewolf the apocalypse and werewolf the forsaken so i feel like that that's such a huge part of the old world is just that sense that they were going to have this big meta story and it's tied in. And I don't know. I I don't know if that's necessarily so much a theme that's really explored that much in, in the new games. Um, Although I guess they have that contagion chronicle now. So that's, that's different in chronicles. Yeah. That's just a crossover book and people are getting sick, but it doesn't seem like it's going to come along and kill literally everyone. Um, So, so that's nice. It's an uplifting tale. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone dies, but you. Congratulations. Yeah. (laughs) So we have kind of that difference in tone. To me, the world of darkness versus the Chronicles of Darkness. Chronicles of Darkness to me is just flat out weirder. There's a lot of kooky shit that's happening in the shadows. I think about like some of the ways that infrastructure manifests in demon the descent and to me there is nothing in world of darkness that comes close to that like the person whose mission is to every day go to a particular graveyard and at 11 48 p.m dig up a particular grave and that grave always has a new body in it every day uh i just think is (laughs) is vastly more like just twilight zone in a way that old world of darkness certainly isn't but uh, systematically one of the big things i want to talk about is so old world of darkness came out like with vampire the masquerade and it was a new system at the time and then chronicles of darkness came out like 12 or 13 years later and the system was different and they learned some things between the two like to you when you think system wise like what are the first things that jump out at you as hey this is how chronicles of darkness does it and i think that's an improvement the core dice system, mathematically, it makes more sense than the old system. Not changing target numbers so much as as changing and affecting dice pools is much easier to wrap your head around, I think. 
rather than i mean in the old games you're like okay what's our what's our target number you know is something else affecting my dice pool like how many different things can we tabulate before i actually get to that role as where with the new system generally it's much more like okay i'm gonna make a role if if it's not contested it's just my attribute plus my skill plus any equipment and then maybe some negative modifiers and that's all just affecting how many dice you roll target number is always the same we're done <laughs> i think that's a big improvement <laughs> I, at least i i, I love it <laughs> chronicle of darkness we're always trying to roll an eight on our die and almost nothing that i know of changes that there might be a, a demon glitch or embed or yeah. something that changes it but otherwise you're always always shooting for an eight what and you mentioned another thing that i liked that equipment add dice how does that manifest in game? Can you give me a scenario where someone will be like, oh, you have this piece of equipment. You get extra dice on this roll. There's so many ways to do it. But I mean, like if let's say you're investigating like a, a crime scene and you you found a piece of evidence, you, you want to find out like, you know, what it's made out of or something like that. Or maybe you're just maybe you're just trying to get as much information about this weird artifact you found. The equipment bonus could be as simple as I have a magnifying glass. And that's going to give you one, you know, one die. Or you could be like, well, I'm going to bring it to my my laboratory. And now I'm going to have like a, a who knows, up, upwards of a plus three, maybe um, if it's if, if you have a whole lab at your disposal, I would say that's probably like an easy one. But I mean, guns are equipment in the game. Those are going to give you extra dice, basically just you know, if you have a tool, those things are going to help you. And I think that I don't, it makes a ton of sense when you say it. It's kind of like I, I know when I run a, a an old World of Darkness game or just a World of Darkness game. Now, I always end up kind of wanting to give people bonuses for the equipment. And I realize that that's not really the way that the game was intended to work. <laughs> It's interesting because you'll see these equipment lists. And I remember reading through and I'm like, what are they? What is an equipment list? And then you're like, oh. And suddenly everything makes sense that there are these like tables of services that say, hey, based on you having this many dots in this, you can probably get this, which will give you this many bonus dice on something like, ah, you have crafts two and auto repair, which will give you a three die bonus to, to something that is germane to that. And it's something that's pretty easy to, to summarize. It's pretty easy for a storyteller to just kind of guess and you, you don't have to change target number. Old World of Darkness, every additional success usually did something more. In New World of Darkness, they, they take a different tack on that. How is that represented? Uh, yeah, so if you, if you end up with five successes or more in a standard dice pool, things change this. But, but generally speaking, if it's five successes or more, you get something called an exceptional success. And that's where you would be getting something way above whatever was intended as a reward for that role. So so if you if you were doing something like like investigating this weird relic or whatever, a basic success might have gotten you some very simple piece of information about the the society that you might be able to be like, oh, okay, well, I now know that this is an Egyptian artifact or something like that. But but an exceptional might like you might be able to immediately just based on this one little scraping in in your your scientific uh, research as as you know indicated exactly where on the Nile Valley this this artifact came from or something like that and for a storyteller it kind of simplifies things in that saying that you only really need two levels of success you you got at least one success all is good or you blew it out of the water and you did something crazy. And that that exceptional success target can change with specialization or, or various other things. But more or less, that's kind of the, the two levels. What does botching look like in Chronicles of Darkness? Does that exist? It does, but it is extremely hard. Basically, botching in Chronicles is 
it only happens on something called a chance die, which is when you're rolling one d10. And if you roll a one on that one d10, that is when a botch can occur. But that's the only way it can occur. It, uh, having a bunch of ones in your dice pool doesn't actually affect anything when it's a standard dice pool. Even with two dice, if you rolled both ones, that isn't a botch. That's just a failure. But if you roll one die with a one, then it's a botch and awful stuff happens. But it, it really doesn't come up that often. I, I've Most characters don't do things that they aren't good at <laughs> and um, I, I found the only times that botches come up are if the if the the storyteller puts a negative effect on the dice pool that's that's when it comes up the most often like when you're rolling for a knowledge or something and you lose three dice because you have no points in it or there's severe yeah. environmental uh, impediments to it or something and that just kind of knocks yeah. it down uh, so you have the botch which generates what's called a dramatic failure are there other ways of getting a dramatic failure so when when you get a standard failure you can choose to to make it a dramatic failure in exchange for a beat, which ties into the the new XP system. And, and the new experience point system is kind of interesting. Instead of having experience points and the rate that you advance slows down, because if you need uh, if you want to get a fourth dot, that costs more than the third dot, which costs more than the second dot. How does Chronicles of Darkness treat that advancement? So the core experience system works kind of the same way you have experiences and you're able to uh, trade those in for something based on a cost but to get an experience that's where it's it's been changed it's it's been made more granular basically through uh, a few different systems in the game you're able to gain beats obviously accepting a dramatic failure will get you a beat there are usually things tied directly into the character in in demon cases that's a tied to your agenda where you're able to make a choice and you would be able to get a beat however the most common way to get them is by resolving a, a condition cards basically that can be given to you so something like having the police after you having a having a condition called wanted if you resolved that you would be able to get a beat so if you figured out a way to get the police off your tail you'd get a beat and that's how character advancement works now so let's walk through that your character is picking a lock and they don't realize and they have three dice on that dice pool uh they don't realize it's alarmed or something like that or they're under a severe time pressure the storyteller levies a three dice penalty and now they're down to a chance die they roll their one die on the chance die they get their one the the police are alerted to their presence uh, a dramatic chase ensues they're able to escape them and as a byproduct of getting out of that jam they get a beat is that kind of what the flow looks like so you would accept that dramatic failure and at that point you would you would get the beat so if they just botched then yes they would they would leave and then the storyteller would give them Ideally, they would they would hand them a card that would say wanted on it. And you would when you give the card to the player, you would say something explaining how that resolution needs to work. So if if the storyteller said something as easy as like, hey, I just want you to get out. I just don't you just have to escape this scene. And if they do that successfully, then they'll, they'll get the beat. That also could be a much longer term thing. It could be like you could escape, but the police still want you. So resolving that wanted status card might actually be more complicated, leading to more story decisions. So what then what are conditions and what are tilts? That's the other thing I've heard that it comes. Can you give some examples or what those are? 
so yeah, it's, it's actually pretty straightforward. This is something that when, when I first started running Chronicles and when I first looked at the new rules in Demon when it came out, I, I was a little bit concerned about because I thought it added a level of complexity to the game that concerned me for running it. But the, the basic thing is, is that tilts are combat-based conditions that do not get the player beats. Tilts ne- don't, when, when they're resolved, don't get the player beats. Condition cards are basically anything that the the storyteller feels, I guess in the way I view it, is something that adds to the story that will help the players have a mechanical benefit to making certain decisions moving forward. So following from where we are, like that idea that you would you would give the player like a, hey, something didn't go really well for you there, but this is this is a new story thing. Let's explore it. Here's a card. Let's explore that through this card. And you'll get you'll get some beats if if you or you'll get a beat if you follow that to conclusion. As where if let's say that he got shot during that chase scene, maybe he got shot and he got hit in the leg and now he's crippled or uh, hobbled, I guess. You could give him a tilt and be like, you're hobbled right now. You're you're th- th- it has an effect. And the the resolution is go, go see a doctor, <laughs> but but that resolution for that physical tilt wouldn't get you a beat, as where resolving the the police wanted condition would. Okay, it seems to be the case that yeah, as you say, anytime the bad thing causes something to happen in the game that maybe wouldn't otherwise, and that opens some dramatic opportunity. Like one of the ones I've seen is is mute. Your character has been registered unable to speak and the resolution the character read gains their voice but the beat is your character suffers a limitation or communication difficulty that heightens their immediate danger uh, so you have this thing that is inflicted upon you it makes your character complicated if you role play that out or or in some way grow as a person or learn something or get some sort of dramatic uh, benefit out of it, you get the beat and you can resolve it some way. Uh, Is this something that you think you can just drag into old world of darkness if you're interested? Or do you feel in any way it ties to something more fundamental? Like, is this something that you would ever bring into like Wraith? That's an interesting question. I think that there's probably room to bring something like that into a game. I think it would depend on the players. For me, for instance, when I, when I run for my Friday group, I don't think that my Friday group needs the extra push to follow up bad decisions. I would say that, that they are maybe too good at making <laughs> the, the, the wrong decisions sometimes because they want to see what will happen. So with that group, I don't need that extra thing. If I did have a group where maybe they didn't want to explore the, I don't know, the the mistakes that their characters would make or the re- resolving those mistakes, I would say that there are, are certainly ways you could build it in. I mean, it would be as easy as saying that you'll get a XP at the end of the session if you resolved any condition that you put on the player. Because I mean, the, the way that the XP system works in the basic, in, in the old world of darkness is pretty simple to throw some extra xp at the players one of the things that i found interesting in in kind of looking at the the conditions and so on is not a lot of games give you unless you purchase a flaw give you obvious downsides like one of the interesting things i find about mage is when you choose your nature and demeanor it says your strength is blah your weakness is blah and i don't know that any of the other old world of darkness 
games do that. Like in Mage, if you say your nature is visionary, your your strength out of this is is that you're maybe indefatigable in pursuit of your vision, but the downside is you are uncompromising in pursuit of that. And when you say your character is uncompromising, that gives you something complicated that you can roleplay that can theoretically be a source of experience, at least to me at my table. And and this is just kind of a way that uh, New World of Darkness kind of bakes that in. Does Chronicles of Darkness keep nature and demeanor or does that get replaced with something else? So they replaced, uh, in, in New World of Darkness, they replaced it with virtue and vice. And that was universal throughout all the games. Werewolves had virtue and vice. Vampires had virtue and vice. Humans had virtues and vices, all, all that. Uh, in Chronicles of Darkness, they got rid of that for non-humans and non-spirits. That's that's an interesting bit of distinction. Most other core books, so Geist or Werewolf or Vampire, uh, Changeling, all those, those will have new, I, I guess, moral values. I don't really know what, I, I can't remember what the word is that they use for them in the Chronicles. Yeah, the morality trait or something like that. Morality trait. And so, so those now represent something much more core to the supernatural experience. As a, uh, an example, in Geist, they use Root and Bloom. Root being the way that you interact with the dead versus Bloom being the way that you interact with the living. And those are supposed to kind of help you as a player define the way that you're going to make choices about the supernatural interactions you have, I guess. Like, um, So they did a really good job in Chronicles of Darkness of adding a key mechanical element to explain, kind of inform, I guess, the players how to play the game, uh, how to play that supernatural race through that replacement. So that sounds like it's a replacement for humanity. Do we still have a nature and demeanor analog? Does everyone still get a vice and a virtue? Nope. No, no, they, it does sound like they're replacing morality, but they also replace uh, humanity as a trait in, in the new Chronicles of Darkness books. The The virtue and vice thing only is applied. There, there's only certain things that have virtues and vices. Those are humans, like non-supernaturals and spirits for whatever reason. Uh, I guess to kind of return to things that they were they did replace though unlike so so their nature and demeanor has been replaced by whatever is applicable for the new supernatural splat as has humanity humanity's been replaced by in geist's case it's synergy but in werewolf in chronicles of darkness i believe it's called balance i'm not i actually can't remember the idea with that is they did another is a really Really smart move. This is some of my favorite things about Chronicles of Darkness is, is these changes. So synergy, just to, to return to Geist, since it's something I've run recently, is basically a stat that represents your relationship with your Geist. So it, it isn't just this is what is right and wrong in the world, which is what humanity kind of was in World of Darkness. In Chronicles of Darkness, you have a whole system that's just trying to explain to you how well you understand this ghostly being that you are now kind of uh, connected with. And it just adds to the role playing. It isn't there just to tell you what's what's uh, morally right or wrong. It can be used in those ways in certain cases, but ultimately it's there to just fuel role playing, which I, I think is great. I have no better way of saying it than it's just better. <laughs> like for lack of a better term, like one of the other things that also struck me is the idea that uh, th- there's a vastly more expansive merit system it seems like there are a lot of things that used to be abilities that have been kind of replaced with merits 
Like, for instance, a, a track uh, appearance is no longer an attribute, but head turning could be a merit. Do you have any strong feelings about moving so many of those random things and turning them just into merits that periodically add dice to your pool? I always get a little bit weird with adding, like, if, if you have too many things to track on a character sheet that will add dice, that can get messy. I have, from, from running the games, I haven't had a problem with that, but it's something that I would say could be concerning because you're like okay i'm gonna you know pull out my gun and i'm gonna i'm gonna shoot this person i'm gonna roll an attribute plus a skill plus the gun as an equipment but then also those merits so like depending that merit might make that might make it might muddy the water i guess is kind of what i'm saying it might not be as simple but so far the merits are pretty straightforward i haven't had to edit any real problems with them like i can't complain about it and I guess the, the the last ones are, it looks like willpower is still a stat here. How does that get used? Is it a, a free success or does it do something else in this case? No, they got rid of the free success, which I, I, I kind of love. Uh, but they, so the way it works now is that when you spend a point of willpower, you get three dice added to your pool, which in a lot of cases does lead to successes. Like having one of the other things about Chronicles of Darkness is that your skills give you, if you're unskilled in something, you'll get a minus to your die pool. So with mental skills, especially that is a minus three as where physical and social is minus one. So a willpower spent cancels out your character, not knowing anything about, let's say medicine when they need to save their friend by using first aid. That's a pretty big deal. They made it. They made it still really powerful. It just isn't an auto success, which I I personally think it's great because auto success is kind of <laughs> it's a little bit narratively killing. I think the, the the auto success seemed to be it's boring. Like the thing I always had with the willpower system was I wish there were a recovery rate that were between every time you have a life affirming action, you gain a couple of willpower points versus the optional. If you had a good night's sleep, you Mm. get a willpower point. I really wish there were something like in between. (laughs) Uh, Like I, I look towards exalted where willpower is frequently a cost, but you can stunt to get willpower back. Or if you have a success of a a sufficient magnitude that makes you go, yeah, I am a badass, and you get willpower back. I kind of wish there were something in between those two levels, but that's, uh, that's just me. No, I agree. I, I always wanted there to be a purely narrative way like i didn't i i almost want a willpower to feel very separate from any kind of progression of sleep or days or any of that stuff like i i I felt like it it's so powerful in both the systems that i i very much want the players to both want to spend it and also want to find ways to get it back and i think that by knowing that you can go to sleep which is, let's be fair, most of the time, like once a session, mm-hmm. um, you, when you know that, you you don't really care anymore. Like willpower doesn't feel important. Uh, the whole going to bed and recovering willpower thing is a problem. <laughs> I haven't quite figured out how I how to run it so that it's perfect yet, but it it does take away the I don't know from the power level of that that stat. Yeah, it, it, to me, I would put it as one of those things that doesn't feel dialed in is the, is the term yeah. of art I think I would I, w- I would probably use to describe that. Are there any other things that you feel are key or different? Like, uh, is combat fundamentally changed in any important ways? I know that they changed the relationship system and now these door thing exists. Do, what are they? Uh, 
I will edit out your grunt of disapproval. This is the one system that I, I've had so many conversations. I've had a lot of conversations with Chaz about this, about, about this system specifically, because I, at this point, I understand what it's for. When I first read, read the rules, I was, I would say vehemently against it. I didn't understand why it was there. Basically what it, what the doors system is, and I would say the best way to to think about it, to use it well in a game is to think of it as it is an extended role for NPCs where you're not going to really role play the relationship, in, in my opinion. To continue just the example is is like if you want to get access to a restricted section in a library, I think this might actually be the one in the book, the example they have. If you want to do that, and the only way to get access to that section is to go through making friends with the librarian who will eventually give you access to this restricted part of the library or whatever. So the storyteller would say, okay, well then that's going to be a certain number of doors that you have to get through. And each one of those doors represents an extended role, uh, a social role. And as you open up doors, you basically complete that relationship. And now you have access to this thing that you wanted or, or something. It, 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 you, you now have this relationship fully unlocked. I don't like that system if you are going to want to role play the NPC. If you don't want to role the, like if you, if you as a storyteller are like, I actually really don't care about this librarian. I really do just want them to get into the damn library, but I do want it to take, you know, three sessions then this is great. But if you did want to make that that librarian an important character and someone that they would get to know and perhaps like befriend or maybe even an enemy, this is not the system. <laughs> yeah, it, it's one of those things where it's like, hey, I want to have this way of keeping track of connections or intimacies or relationships or what have you. I want a semi-mechanical way of doing it. Also, I want it to take a lot of game time, but not a lot of table time. It seems to try and answer that question. Anything else about Chronicles of Darkness that you that you like that you think can be pulled back into uh, Old World of Darkness or anything that you're like, hey, even if you don't want to play this particular line, grab this and look at it here? I think that the best things that they did were to figure out ways to not tie the supernatural like races into like they found new ways to explore the systems that would allow you as a player to look at a character sheet and be like okay this is how my character works this is how the supernatural strange alien being is going to play and that doesn't really exist in the old world of darkness very clearly i think those are most of the big advancements things like the the new virtue vice systems uh, from the core books I think are some of the most valuable systems that they added. Somewhat frequent conversation in the mage community of adding something like a hubris mechanic. Yeah, in, instead of having that uh, that virtue or vice, you should have some way of representing like what is your inclination towards using magic to solve a problem, or or how willing are you to put your ideas or your paradigm on the line to, to challenge someone else. And other people are like, no, that should be strictly role played. But to me, it's often useful to have a a system to kind of back up that kind of role play. To be like, hey, you did a good job with that. That's going to be reflected this way. Or alternatively, this stat is at here, which means your character should be this much of a jerk or, or, or something like that. I really agree with that. because, And I think uh, especially during during the days of, of the coronavirus. <laughs> um, <laughs> In the days of the uh, Rona. 
in in the in the days of the Rona, I I think that uh, I've experienced as as someone who's running games and and, and generally speaking, I run really uh, pretty dark and serious games with. I would say maybe an atmosphere that isn't something I'm necessarily going to want to explore during a stressful time. Something that's really nice about systems that really help the players play their characters or, or, or kind of put a crux there for them to kind of lean on is that it allows people to maybe more casually make seriously intense decisions. <laughs> I think that that like what you were describing, where if you if you're coming into a game session, you've been working all week, you might be a little exhausted. You might not be able to play your character as much as you want to. But then you'll look at the character sheet and be like, well, OK, all I have to do is like, I, I know that this is how I want to investigate things with my magic. I don't have to think too hard. I'm, I'm reminded I'll just lean on that this session. I'll do something simple. But that simple thing is going to be interesting not just actually i'm just not going to talk all session that's just just my two cents i just think i think those tools are really useful i think especially when people are exhausted <laughs> yeah I, I i just wish chronicles of darkness had, had a wee bit more meta plot and, and a few other things i i fully understand yet yeah, not everything can be apocalyptic all the time but i i remember one of the developers was talking about when chronicles of darkness came out the setting was so ill-defined, people weren't sure if cell phones existed in that world. And I thought that was this, and that was like, that was the point where we're like, yeah, maybe we need a little more information. <laughs> and I'm like a little, a little, a little too toolboxy. Yeah. The, uh, the other things that I encountered were, I love the idea that they introduced the idea of being something being a rote, like a something your character has done so often. Like one of the things that bothers me in games is when the probability distributions are completely out of whack. Like I hate D20 systems. Like I could think of nothing in my life where I have a 5% chance of failing it horribly or a 5% chance of like absolutely blowing it out of the water like what, <laughs> yeah. what, what what does an exceptional success when i make a breakfast sandwich even look like and that stuff always got me uh, and one of the ways chronicles of darkness tackled that was by making something what they refer to as rote where you roll for something and any dice that came up as failures you roll one more time so it, it's a way of indicating something that your character is so good at or so rehearsed at that their odds of failure are significantly below even what their dice pool would suggest I, I i do like that that exceptional success thing it does force the book seemingly to do more things because you now have to stipulate an exceptional success but it seems like the writers have uh, have figured have figured that out. Now, uh, here here's a plot twist for you. Uh, you and I have also talked extensively about the dozens of other games we have also played. Is there anything? Are there any other games that you drag in when you decide to run a World of Darkness or a Chronicles of Darkness game? I do play with a lot of. I guess I I, I pull in different ideas from systems pretty regularly. I have a my my Friday group is filled with people who kind of. The system is very much the sidelined character at the table. Um, it's much more about the uh, interactions that everyone's having and kind of what makes sense at that moment is more important. Um, so I've done a lot of different things. I would say the craziest thing that I've done as far as, as experimentation goes is I started a Wraith game by playing Fiasco. And then I ran Wraith by by starting it at the end of the fiasco game. So I went from 
the only rule for the fiasco game that isn't a standard fiasco is that I said everyone has to die at the end of the session. <laughs> I don't care how it could have been. It could have been, you know, in the monologue at the end where like, you know, you're getting away or whatever. You've you've done all this stuff and, and maybe you live a long life. But no matter what, at the end of that, we know how you died. Um, and then I, then I made everyone roll character sheets the next session for Wraith. And we started from there. I don't know if I can uh, recommend this strategy. It did lead to some interesting effects, but it it isn't. Uh, it does lead to a very chaotic group of characters who may or may not hate each other. As it should. Um, in in fact, <laughs> I I wrote a yeah. supplement for Mage to develop <laughs> plot webs, basically using the uh, the fiasco, uh, the way you set up the game for fiasco, where you determines everyone's relationship and all the objects and so on. I, I there's actually I created a storyteller vault supplement for how to do that, and I want to do it for Exalted. But I don't know if that'll work quite so well because Exalted is not prone towards uh, Cohen Brothers esque death inspired comedy. Uh, but <laughs> but but Chaz and I are going to try, and then we're going to see what happens. So we'll see how that goes. I mean, there's so many there's so many basic things that I would say that I learned from playing Fiasco that at this point I put them into games. But doing things like, I, I mean, I pretty much try to find ways of letting the players describe as much as possible at this point like there are things that i have set up in the in my setting and then i think it's really fun to hand the player the how does this scene start kind of baton mm -hmm. uh, which is very very much a fiasco thing there's a lot of little things like that that i think are just i i, I just highly suggest anyone playing role-playing games go play fiasco <laughs> yeah it, it certainly adds a bunch of things to your toolbox and i can i can definitely agree with that i i have found handing players the narrative baton to be very much a mix a have a mixed track record depending on the players and so on I like doing it because it buys me time to think about the everything else that might be going on. But sure. sometimes players just clam up and are like, yeah, and that's yep. that's not quite so fun. But yes, uh, a, a two thumbs up suggestion. Go play Fiasco. You'll learn a little bit about yourself. Um, or I don't know if that's actually true. I just kind of wanted <laughs> your darker, chaotic, <laughs> fire loving self. <laughs> yeah, the last game we played involved uh, a cult of Satan that had opened a. It had a front that was a combination quick oil job place slash Mexican food place slash sperm bank. Um, <laughs> Oh, I love fiasco. Yeah, and it went the exact direction that you think that would be that would go. Yeah. So that was that was pleasing. The last time I played it, I ended up having a civil war cannon. <laughs> that I think I was running a like a an inn or like like a, a hotel, and it had one of those cannons out out front. But like I had made it into this whole thing that I had refurbished it, and it worked. <laughs> over the course of like the whole game so the last scene of course when everything is going to hell and everyone is like you know just you know classic fiasco it's becoming a fiasco i ended up like rolling out on the back of like a flatbed truck with this cannon <laughs> go play fiasco folks. exactly more games should end with people pulling out cannons at the end the other thing i think of when i think of noah is art you are a reasonably accomplished uh, fantasy artist you have a wonderful portfolio that's available in a number of places you do live streams uh you have been doing that throughout the pandemic how did you get into doing uh, fantasy art like is that is that the genre that i can call that is there a term of art i should use how did you get into that yeah i think for for what 
most of the art that I've been doing has fantasy elements. I think that that it's pretty hard. I, I've had a very difficult time nailing down exactly what it is that I do. But I, I would say that a, a, a bare minimum, what a majority of people uh, have seen over, over the years is definitely like fantasy or, or horror art. Uh, art that that makes sense for a podcast like this to be talking about. <laughs> I would describe um, your artistic style as very informed by the album covers I remember from the 90s and early 2000s, which in <laughs> no way helps, but like there's a fair number of your pieces where I'm like, "Oh yeah, I think Prodigy had an album with that kind of as the color. that reminds me of uh, of Live uh throwing copper." Yeah, that's what <laughs> <laughs> And a few other yeah, things. I, so how did you get into doing that? I have a very artistic family. I grew up with musicians and artists kind of all around me. So it's kind of something that's in my blood. But I I started painting like uh, a lot when I was in high school. And I kind of just kept doing it. I'm entirely self-taught. I never, I didn't go to school or anything. I did take classes. I have gone through mentorships at this point to kind of get my skill level up to where I wanted, but I pretty much just kind of, um, I, I just love uh, creating art. I don't really know if I can say when I got into it or how I got into it. I can say for certain that that as far as influences go, that that got me into wanting to make specifically fantasy pieces were, were certainly like all of the White Wolf books definitely got me hugely driven, and there's so many great artists that I could, I could list in there that that have have inspired me over the years. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I I'm not sure that there's like one big catalyst moment that that has me getting into the the genre. <laughs> to me, if I had to pick a a genre or a large genre and just point to it, it would I would call it like modern expressionism. Or something close to that. That makes me um, feel good. I, I love expressionism. <laughs> it's I am bothered by the fact that when people talk about expressionism, generally they only talk about Edvard Munk and they don't talk about like the full panoply of like, oh, it's a successor to El Greco's mannerism. Or I, I don't know if you're a fan of Egon Schiele or or He's Kandinsky. Like one of my favorites. Yeah. Schiele yeah, uh, is like one of my I would say probably as far as like earliest like artists that made me want to become an artist i would say that sheila's stuff is is way up there the other one that that comes to mind for me is probably amadeo medigliani mostly because a lot of your characters don't have eyes but (laughs) (laughs) that that's probably the the closest thing there so you do these and you do the uh the cover images for the story told whenever they do a character creation or something like that but you're also building a portfolio as a fantasy artist or an rpg artist what has that process been like I guess I would say storied. Um, it's it's been it's been kind of strange. I mean, when when I first got into when I first started taking it as a like a, a career, this is what I want to be doing uh, with with my life. I tried. I was I was very much on the path to becoming like a concept artist. I was thinking about it in those terms. I wanted to work for people to create what they were visualizing in their minds that really appealed to me as i've gotten older i've wanted to you know i I have certain companies and certain book lines that i would love to get a piece into there are things that that have driven me in those directions so there have been pieces that i've made specifically for that i had some art in in the uh the vampire the eternal struggle card game 
years and years ago before they were even called Black Shantry, who's the current group that's running it. Uh, I, I made connections in that group and got art into that. Yeah, I don't know. It's been kind of a weird, weird ride, I guess. I, I think everybody's artistic journeys kind of go in and take them in different directions, but I've certainly gone into some kind of strange rabbit holes over the years. I mean, my art's been on almost every kind of medium that I can think of at this point. I've I've done shirt designs, I've done album art, I've done like things for people's websites, like all, all kinds of stuff. So the the building of a portfolio is kind of kind of a weird way to put it. It's kind of just been a weird journey of creating art and then finding things that work and don't work and that make me happy and don't make me happy. At this point. The stuff I've been working on is is kind of folktale inspired in a lot of like my personal work is is very folktale inspired. The stuff that I do for the story told or for character commissions or, or things like that, those are much more driven off of what the, the the clients are looking for. Yeah, and and one of the things that's come across in in our conversations about it is there's a lot of people that go through what I'll call a starving artist phase, where they'll take whatever money they can get for whatever they could possibly sell. Uh, you are not doing that. Uh, what made you choose to kind of skip that I'll work for nothing phase and instead say, hey, this is my art. It's worth something. I will just need to cultivate the group of people that will pay me for such. Uh, how did that come about? So, I mean, it's it's a fairly long thing. I mean, the, the real driving kind of the, the fact behind all of that is that this is not I mean, I've been making and selling art now for oh gosh, I, I mean, I the first painting I ever sold, I was like, I was still in high school. So I was like 15 or something like that. Most of the art that I've sold over the years has been entirely to people who have have wanted something that they saw me working on. I, I definitely had the starving art. I, I would say I, I, in, in a lot of ways, I still live mentally as a starving artist because I've worked, you know, the whole time that I said I didn't have, I didn't go to school or anything basically represents working in grocery stores um, for who knows how many hours for who knows how little pay, you know, throughout all of that, I pretty much did nothing but take any moment I had to draw or paint. And I still do that. And at the point that I got to, I realized that I wasn't having any success getting jobs at companies uh, that I wanted to get jobs at. I wasn't having any luck getting concept art jobs or any of that. It wasn't It wasn't happening. Uh, my skill level was, uh, I would say, above average for someone who hadn't taken any classes at all, but certainly wasn't at the point that I wanted it to be. I basically made a choice that I wasn't going to sell my art for as little as I was selling it. And so much of this is all tied up in, in different stories here. I feel like I could go on with this for a while, but but I, I think ultimately that it comes down to the fact that I wasn't willing to sell myself short anymore. And I also learned at kind of the same time that you can actually learn how to be a, uh, a good artist, <laughs> uh, which I, I didn't really believe when I was younger. I thought it was something that was inherently inside of you. Training kind of changed my mentality about things like that. And that that's where the, the, you know, drive to, make money with without compromise kind of came up it's also a very much a graphic design thing it's all there's, there's a lot there's a lot to unpack there <laughs> noted what, what do you kind of see as someone who would like to do more paid work and has certainly skill in a portfolio and so anything what is kind of your view of the current state of the fantasy art field it's interesting because i i think ultimately things are actually 
kind of finally changing. I think if, if you'd asked me a couple of years ago, I would have had a pretty bleak view about the way that things were going. I, I think especially if you look at some of the big names, things like like D&D or uh, Magic, there's some amazing artists that work for these companies, but they were both kind of heading towards this generic vision of what fantasy art is. And I would say only just recently, we're starting to see artists that don't fit that mold starting to get jobs. I think that's honestly, in some ways, one of the reasons my portfolio is kind of weird is because I started, at some point I started to make art that looked like that. I wanted to make art that would get me jobs. I wasn't making art that I enjoyed inherently. And that's probably like the biggest change for me recently is just that mentality shift. But like, as far as the way that the, the art is going, I mean, I think you've got some amazing combination of graphic design and artists working on so many different titles. Like it feels like much more than before, there are so many artists that if a new book comes out and they want a very specific style, there's probably you know, five artists that can support that now. And we're going to get like a really good book and graphic design for that book. It's kind of interesting. Rich Thomas, yeah, Rich Thomas always talked about the fact that when Paradox bought the White Wolf line, they looked through some of the stuff and they're like, this is ridiculous. You should have one artist doing everything in, every, in the line. That way it has unity in the graphic presentation. And it, that seemed to be the direction a lot of things had gone. And that seems to be opening back up again thank goodness i I think audiences are smart enough to be like oh yeah this key character is being drawn in three very different ways and i can still easily identify what is going on without too much difficulty i would argue a lot of that comes from and 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 i i'm you know somewhat at fault of this because i i the way that i make my my day job money is is through graphic design so i understand this concept uh, maybe all too well, but branding is one of those things that when you, if you talk to a graphic designer, they are going to look at, they're going to look at a a role-playing book and say exactly what you said. They're going to look at it and be like, well, this isn't presenting a clear enough picture. This isn't, we're not streamlined enough. We're not presenting the simplest possible image to convey a complex idea, which is what I would argue is kind of going on when when you look at uh, specifically magic, I always think of it, is it just becomes this homogenized kind of, while we have hired the best artists we can find, they are all kind of producing the same thing, kind of art. And I, I think that, like you said, ha- happily, it feels like maybe the, the wheel is kind of turning back and people want something a little bit more more genuine and less corporate, I guess is kind of maybe the way to put it. Yeah, and my way of putting it is for for the art history dorks, like there's a lot of Raphaels running around out there. <laughs> like in my opinion, the Raphael was the greatest of the classical painters. Like of anything that the Renaissance uh, spat out, uh, there was nothing better. And then people spent uh, 50 years trying to copy Raphael, which in no way was interesting. And that's how we we got to oh god, what was the move, movement that came after that? The Rococo? No, the Rococo was their Baroque revival. Was that not mannerism? Ah, everything looked acid-washed and people's proportions didn't look right. Yeah, mannerism is the successor to the Renaissance, where things were kind of realistic, but everything had wonky proportions, and you had, Mm. uh, like, Madonna with the long neck, where it's like, what if Madonna were a swan? (laughs) And so on. And, and, And fantasy art seems to have done that. Either what fantasy artists do you look to for inspiration, or what games do you think have come up with really interesting visual styles, or come up with a lot of play space for artists to be in so it, it, yeah there's there's a broad range at this point of games that i think are 
are kind of taking on i don't know are, are i guess maybe a little bit more focused on what art they're putting into their book i think uh i know we recently discussed this but i think that the the um the game workborg does an incredible job of presenting not only the setting but also the rules in a very uh it's very graphical but but a extremely interesting like art style and it's very much like a, it's probably pretty near and dear to my heart just because it's very like metal and punk inspired it feel it feels just like looking through it just feels like looking through posters of shows that i've been through uh for however many years so they did an incredible job i know they're they're winning awards for it at this point i believe so so that's that's great but i mean i i uh that's the one that just comes to head because it's so it's so art driven to me I, I really do think that like the the artists that have been getting chosen for a lot of Onyx Paths books have been getting more and more interesting. I wasn't a huge fan of the art that was in the uh, I guess I'll say the New World of Darkness books, the first edition Chronicles of Darkness books. I don't know what what, what people call it at this point. The the art in those there were some really great pieces, but then there uh, were a lot of things that just kind of felt. I don't know, I guess forgettable to me. Yeah, it was a lot of Michael Gatos doing photo-inspired sepia pieces, which is great. I just don't want an entire book of that. Yeah, I hate to rip on artists, but I really am, for, for me, I'm super tired of people imitating Christopher Shy. Mm. I, I would really like people to stop doing that. I, yeah, we I already never... have Christopher Shy. We don't need another yeah. one. Yeah, and I can't help but whenever I see people who are doing it in, in a book, like all I can end up thinking is that the only reason that you like this is awful but the like i i can't help but just think that the reason that the art is there is because christopher shy charges more like like i i'd be surprised if it doesn't come down to a money thing and that that's kind of a bummer wait explain that to me basically i would imagine that christopher shy charges quite a bit of money for his pieces at this point oh okay and, Got and it. that would push him out of certain publishing markets budgets as where there are plenty of people who can imitate Christopher Shy who will not charge as much. Understood. Got it. It's also the case where some of these people kind of have studios, it seems, that produce things of a certain style, and then people get trained in that, and then they move on, and and like kind of the default is to emulate that style. It kind of reminds me, what's the Simpsons ones like? Get me Steven Spielberg. That would cost tens of millions of dollars. Get me his non-union Mexican counterpart, Stefan Spielbergo. Everything makes sense again. I, another game you and I have, uh, so Christopher Shy did the covers to all of of the revised tradition books for Made. So if you're curious what it is, I guess uh, Christopher Shy does beautiful work, but they're all white people seemingly, which I think is one of my criticisms. Like when your dream speaker, Verbena and Akashic all look like they're the same color. That's the part where I'm like, eh. Um, <laughs> Old White Wolf does not do a good job of representing minorities in either their art or in their text in most cases. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, another a reality. I love the books, but it's just how it is. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's terrifying to look back and be like, they were one of the best at the time. <laughs> we're, we're like, that is a uh, a backhanded compliment, as it were. Um, yeah. a, another game you and I have have both engaged in that had kind of distinctive artistic styles were one, uh, City of Mists, and another one, Invisible Sun. Uh, did either of those have any artistic uh, fingerprints that you were particularly fond of? I mean, both of those are, are fantastic. I think, I mean, uh, City of Mists to me is, 
it's an art style that I cannot really, um, there, there are a few art styles that I, I guess I haven't studied or taken the time to be able to emulate them myself. And comic book art is one of those things that I just struggle with whenever I have to, whenever I have to try and emulate it. So I find it very impressive. And, the, and I, I don't remember the artist's name who does that, that book's art, but it, it is really beautiful. And it does evoke, it does all of the legwork to set that, that uh, city up or the city up visually and invisible sun is just a a marvel <laughs> i mean it, it it does so many things to to make itself feel like this bespoke occult product and the the art inside definitely helps uh sell i mean you need art to explain surreal things i think I can certainly get behind that. I think the artist for City of Mist is uh, Marcin Sobon or something like that. Um, or at least that's what I got when I looked it up on DriveThruRPG. City of Mist is a purportedly neo-noir game that I have mixed feelings about. And as a very uh, distinct comic booky visual style that makes everyone look intense and striking, the world it kind of suggests is this is this neo noir lots of neon lights not lots of very harsh fluorescence coming through invisible sun is is a surreal game that i absolutely adore that i need to find a way to let me talk about it on mage the podcast more but eventually we will get there the other half is graphic design have you are there ways in which you have seen how a rpg book works change over time oh yeah for me like the first role playing book that I really remember like the thing that that kind of won me over about the entire concept was the uh, revised vampire the masquerade I mean it, it had I, I don't know it had some kind of uh, like, like a mesmeric effect on me when I was when I was first discovered it I think it was like a Barnes and Nobles and I was definitely that kid who just kept having to walk in because I couldn't afford to buy the damn thing and you know sitting there for hours pouring over this book and that's that's where i discovered like some of my favorite artists like like guy davis's work is in there yeah i mean graphic design wise it's very far away from what we have now but but talk about just like the mood of that book when you pick it up is is just something like i could just tell it was something different the fact that it had no none of the like i, I think at that point that was that was third edition D D would have been out at that point and like third edition by contrast is this like you know it's pretending to look like some ancient magical tome as where vampire is a green book in the midst of definitely nothing else that color with silver letters and just a rose on the front cover and like it's just so striking like it's such a simple image it, there's nothing really fancy about it but it's but it's amazing skip forward to uh v5 which uh, has had a complex history, but at this point I own it physically. And V5, it took me a little while to, to warm up to it. And there's still things about it that I don't love as far as the visuals, just raw visuals. But the, the thing that I think is most interesting about it is that it is pretending to be a magazine. Uh, graphic design wise it's 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 set up so that as you're flipping through it, it very much feels like an expensive thick magazine in my opinion it feels like like you're it's it's just just between the the text choices the way that the images are placed on the page the way that the titles are interacting with images all of that stuff just makes it feel like a magazine which i never thought i wanted but it actually makes sense. And in some ways to segue back to 
Morkborg. Morkborg does the same thing, except it's emulating a zine, which is another thing I would never have thought of design-wise to choose. But this this interesting thing that's occurring where you're emulating an older format for a book with a new with with new technology and and new color and all that is very interesting. Um, Thousand Year Old Vampire does a great job with that too. It looks like a journal. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because for Old World of Darkness, at least in all the X20 lines, most of them are pretty standard. Uh, start each chapter with a full pager, have periodic half pagers and quarter pagers that are kind of distributed throughout with a few verticals. Nothing that crazy. Werewolf kind of departs from that, where Werewolf has a strong tendency to break the text box and to require some sort of uh, of flowing text to it. Uh, but by the time we get to V5, it's completely different. It's It goes between two column and three column. It, it has a very strong epistolary feel that, that the photos have been put into place as if they were almost physical photos. And then they were put in position. One of the things that I found interesting about V5 was the sheer number of those photos that were actually practically done. Like the images that show blood in the frame, that was done by putting a piece of acrylic in frame on top of the art model. And that uh, that, that kind of pleased me. Um, the one area where I do feel like sometimes games have gone backwards is visual organization. Um, the, the advent of the book where it is, where any given piece of information is seemingly unfindable, uh, seems to have, have reemerged. And I'm not quite sure what causes that, but that, that's, that's one thing that, that, that always gets me the, uh, the modern art of indexing. It's interesting to back a book on Kickstarter and to be like, if we make $40,000, there'll be an index. And you're like, yeah. oh, that's a thing. <laughs> And even if they do have an index, there's like a 50-50 chance that it doesn't actually help you. <laughs> yeah, it's they've they've become somewhat incomprehensible. I, I don't know how many, how often they just assume that you're going to like control F through a PDF, but yeah. I, I've wondered at the same thing. <laughs> what do you think art brings to an RPG? Like one of the things I run into is so I write a bunch of stuff for the Storyteller Vault and I, my, my most successful publication, I am up to four and a half cents a word on it. And the art I do is either going to be something I was able to find for free that was royalty free, or I pay someone like you at least $75 and up to 200 to get a, a single page uh, colored piece. I, I find it interesting that we've kind of worked out the thing where art will be at a somewhat fixed rate, but everything else will kind of be floating, and it's the author who who may or may not make any money on it. Do you think there's a a better model of doing RPG art where artists are better recognized for their work, and it doesn't result in just kind of starving out someone else? It's extremely complicated. I've had... Th- th- this is the kinds of conversations that I've had over the last couple of years, specifically since I've kind of gotten more work and more people are looking at what I've been working on. And I don't know that there's like an easy answer to how to make a role-playing game book uh, financially viable and make sense. I think that unfortunately, writers seem to be in the same state that bands are in from from my point of view, where as I do a lot of album art for 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 musicians, and um, the musicians that can afford to 
to pay me, it mostly comes down to the fact that they really value my work. Like they came to me, they want my work on there because there's some kind of gel between what I'm working on and what they're working on. And I don't, you know, the way that, that I've always treated any kind of projects is that, that at this point I, I don't work for free and I do have certain amounts of money that I, I need to charge in order to feel okay about the time that I'm going to put into something. But when it comes down to it, I think that if you want to be doing work with people that, that ne don't necessarily have that the money, you have to make a choice about whether or not it's going to be fun for you <laughs> as an artist. If it's not going to be fun and you're, you're going to work your ass off for someone, don't do it. There's a reason that I don't, I, I, I worked very hard not to work for people in retail that I did not like and did not enjoy working for. I did not trade that to, a, to do that for someone else. <laughs> that, that is, it, even if it's art, it's, it, there, it doesn't change anything about about that. I think that as far as like how to make it all viable, how to make, a, especially from like a writer's perspective, I think that you, unfortunately, I think you really have to make those connections with artists because coming up to, as an artist, I can speak to the fact that the amount of people that I get coming up to me that don't have money that want me to do a horrendous amount of work for nothing or or speculatively, making some money it happens a lot <laughs> it's it is a i would say a pretty constant flow throughout a week and yeah it's not something that you can say yes to <laughs> as an artist i, I so, don't i don't yeah so it seems like it kind of defines into two things there are the things that you're willing to do because it looks like they will be fun and it'll be for something that you think is valuable and then there's everything else that you're kind of skeptical for and you're like no 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 this is what i need to make on this yeah i mean i i guess this is kind of becoming a note to younger artists or something here or just people who are starting out but like it, it just ultimately comes down to the fact that you have to kind of take care of yourself and you you can't it, it as someone who grew up pretty poor and has led a pretty um, money deficit lifestyle for most of my life until very recently, um, where I would say I'm, I'm comfortable for the first time in, you know, 30 years. It, it is, just, it's just not something that you can like, I don't know, your time has value. You, you, you need to value it. And if someone doesn't value it, then they, you, they, they don't owe you anything. And or sorry, you don't owe them anything. And also, like, there are just times where you need to turn down a hundred dollars. <laughs> like, if it's going to involve working your ass off for two weeks, a hundred bucks means nothing. Uh, I'm kind of on the other end of it, where so we have a podcast that's moderately successful. I have a few publications on Drive Through RPG that that have gotten enough activity that people have kind of noticed and people are like hey do you want to work with me on this project and one of my general rules is if i'm working with someone for the first time i will not be the person who does more work first mm -hmm. i i need to see the other person do their lift like to me before i say yeah i will i will write up the scenario for you i need to see that the rest of the book is coming along nicely 
I have no interest in writing for your compendium if I'm the only one who's going to do it. And then you're going to want to take like a certain percentage of that. I, I don't know if there's an artistic analog of never volunteer to work on a project until they already have a first draft or something like that. But that that is one of the few lessons I've taken so far that seem seemingly has uh, has served me well. Yeah, never work with someone who's mostly marketing unless they've already done a whole bunch of the the work for it. Um, so that's that's been my rule so far. I mean, it, um, it's it's one of those like school you know lessons where you're like you know you get teamed up with somebody and then they don't do any work and you put in all the work and that, mm -hmm. that yeah, it, it's the same thing <laughs> amen to that um anything else that's on your mind game or art wise like if someone's like oh this is interesting i never thought of uh fantasy art as being this big thing are there any resources in terms of seeing new stuff like are there any artists that people should pay attention to are there any particularly good cultivated feeds on maybe instagram or tumblr or something that you recommend if someone is trying to become more aware of rpg art how do you think they should start doing that if you just want to see some great fantasy art in general, I would point people towards looking at ArtStation. That website has pretty much the top people in the industry like posting work there. And that's that's a lot of that's a wide range of industry uh, space. That's that's a lot of concept artists, 3D artists, character artists, like all kinds of stuff. That's probably where I would point you to if you just want to find great art. In a lot of ways, it's kind of I, it kind of feels like a professional and maybe a little bit more, um, I don't know, it, it isn't exactly curated because it is just, you can just join the website. But I would say that for, for whatever reason, the quality of stuff that's posted on there has always felt good. I was going to say that it's like a, a better deviant art in the way that you can just kind of join it and post art onto it. But, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, so I, I would say that I, I if, if you're like, an actual artist i unfortunately my biggest resource has kind of just um become problematic so i i don't i can't really suggest anything right now i know there are a bunch of different places that are kind of starting up new communities though so um i don't know hit, hit me up on discord and i can try and point you at some people <laughs> just out of curiosity what is the your prior recommendation that has become problematic the, the community that I was the most involved in and that I had made the most connections through was, was a community called One Fantastic Week. Most people will know the artists involved in that, like that there, there uh, were two co-hosts. The, the, the bigger name on that would be Pete Morbacher, who's uh, very, very well known in the magic scene. And yeah, that's not a thing anymore though. So so I can't really point you to it. They, they do still have a blog up. I don't know... For how, or sorry, they have a they have a podcast slash YouTube channel. I don't know how long any of that is going to remain. It's all just pretty unfortunate. I, I don't I don't really want to go into the nonsense, but it's pretty much par for the course for 2020 that people end up being creeps. So that, that's that's where I'll leave that. Got it. And if people are interested in following your work, how can they do that? So many ways. Um, <laughs> uh, so the, the best ways right now are, um, Instagram.com it's slash, uh, Iker dot teeth. So it's I C H O R period. And then teeth, and you can find Iker and teeth or Iker teeth on most social media at this point. I, I think I've got it pretty well covered minus Twitter, which has never made any sense to me. Noah, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. 
one of the goals that we have for systematic understanding of everything is to have everyone say now recording at the same time and we haven't quite gotten it yet but yeah so that's a thing there's definitely a technique and exalted for that like harmonizing unison technique <laughs> unitary record commencement stance um, <laughs> or something like that i love making fake charm names but whenever i try yeah. and do it chaz and monica are like no that's not funny that's our word i'm like hey buddy <laughs> i'm like they're pretty no stupid. no it is funny yeah thank you <laughs> thank you i make fun of exalted charm names all the time <laughs> that stuff is i both love it and and there's no way that it isn't funny <laughs> yeah exactly it's like there's this de minimis amount of self-awareness to it yeah. i'm super curious how they wind up covering that for exalted essence or like i hope it's something like punch gooder method like it goes the complete <laughs> opposite direction where it sounds like poorly educated yeah. mountain folk is responsible for it yeah <laughs> you don't get good. good punch technique <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> harder single good punch technique uh this ought to fuck him up stance <laughs> this ought, yes <laughs> bitch going down pose um oh i'm a fuck you up yes. technique <laughs> i'd play yeah. that <laughs> we should I, I would too we need to do that the trailer play. the trailer park reskinning of exalted oh my god yes <laughs> I'm, I'm ready <laughs> you one of them solars <laughs> The, you have to take the same aesthetic like choices that anime makes, but apply it to the trailer park. So like they'll have the fantasy weapon size, but it'll be a thing like 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 it'll have like you know the the grand die clave, but it'll be a frying pan. I, I yeah, I was thinking it would just be a truck axle. <laughs> yes, yeah. that you just kind of, that you just kind of wielded. This is even better than our reskinning of Siderials as 80, 80s action movies. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Basically, there's a lot of reskinning options here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if this were as easily openly licensed as Power by the Apocalypse, you and I would be tens oh of thousands of heirs at current. <laughs> be like, it's, it's time for Kickstarter. <laughs> yeah, Charlie, I love you, but I'm not going to see you for a while. Terry and I have a project that calls to my soul in a way that few things do. <laughs> Why are you drawing a redneck dual wielding frying pans? I'm like, are you telling me it's not cool? No, it's cool. I'm just wondering why. Yeah. He's going to roll 300 d <laughs> Exactly. 300. Bubba rises again technique. I could. I... Do we satirize that as well? And, and instead of d10s, you have to roll d4s. Like you have to have like 300 d4s prepared. Like because everything only has four options. Like that's it. I'm fine with that. <laughs> uh, so I would be fine if we just went with d6s and just made it like some sort of heresy. And it's like, okay, fives and sixes are successes. Let's stop being assholes about this. <laughs> Uh, or, or or a whole bunch of fucking pennies D penny yeah they're coin flips or d20s <laughs> that it can be a d20 system but you're rolling like 300 <laughs> d20s yes it takes months <laughs> for them to all stop there was a system mastery did a mockery yeah. thing of mike merles who had posted about i gave my players a whole bunch of fudge dice and if they want to they can roll them and if uh there's more positive than negative something good happens and if there's more negatives than positive something bad happens they're like congratulations mike marles you've invented the fucking coin flip yeah um, yeah <laughs> when i was in high school i had a friend and both of us would, would do all these kind of it was i was much more into system design back then and like we both got into like probability talks and all that stuff and at one point we both got so sick of looking at dice that we i know he he came into the room and he was like all right we're just going to use a spinner that's what we're, we're so so he took out a spinner i forget what board game that we had that had one but like 
you just use a spinner for everything. You just say this side's good, this side's bad, and then how close the the arrow lands to to that those sides is is the system. That's it. Interesting. <laughs> yep. At one point, we didn't have a spinner, so so it became the D shoe system, where you'd spin a shoe. <laughs> that's yeah. That, I mean, that's a well established emergency technique. What was what is the utterly complicated game that you have this like seventy two sided token flip thing? Oh God! But the system is free, but the token is is like twenty five dollars. Ah, free RPG token. I don't know what it's called. It's this obscenely complicated game. And it's one of those things where um, the token itself has so many sides and ways of being read where it's like to attack, you need to roll a tree within three flips of the moon or something like that. And apparently in context, that makes sense, but not to me. What the hell was it called? I'm going to have to look for it. I thought for a second you were talking about fatal, but I don't think that's no, (laughs) no, no. This this was just esoteric. It wasn't um, anti-Semitic. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Glyphs was it? Glyph, glyph RPG. Now we yes we there we are. It is a free game, but this this you have to see this token is fucking batshit, Noah. I am going to send it to you over Discord. You're going to be like, okay, my eyes just exploded with how amazing this thing is. Sounds like the the box or the cube, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, that, that's that's the system? That's the system. Uh huh. Yeah, I mean, I have, I feel like I have a lot of questions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's one of those things where if I saw a kid with that, I wouldn't know if they had joined a cult or they were doing yeah. drugs. Or both, Those like are the best role-playing games. Yeah, <laughs> I would rather encounter a child with marijuana in their backpack than find them with this token. To and find I, that token and be like, "Oh shit, you're getting <laughs> into some." Yeah, I know. Like we fucked up. <laughs> she <laughs> not have pissed this kid off. <laughs> exactly. If you click on the download Argen manual, it gives you some things. It tells you what's going on. The permutation glyphs which determines subject random qualities, which allow for skew action, extrude or stretch. Um, These are 3d design terms. Why? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's only 1899 for the token. And apparently there's some sort of thing that you have to throw it at too. Yeah, there's a board. I just look at you for, for $16. You can get a board that looks, I mean, th- this is definitely entering the cube territory as far as like, what is this? I kind of want to know. Uh, <laughs> yes, it, it does have a certain uh, uh, siren song to it. I'll give you that. Yeah, the, the page is for like glyphs, but at the si- side, it's like caution, partial nudity, fantasy, violence. And you're like, wait, on the glyph? What are we doing yeah. here? <laughs> well, when you throw the glyph, something is going to happen. Exactly. Like possibility. <laughs> That that's not safe. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a small chance that your character may cast a fireball, or you might have to take an article of clothing off. It's a very yeah. <laughs> it's a very next gen game. You know what happens in game in a Call of Cthulhu game? Well, that might happen outside. Out of game, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. He had to make a sanity check. His character, no, the player. That's a thing that exists. But the the game is free. It's 450 pages. But yeah, Wait, how many? 450. And uh, it's free. The game is free. The token is $35 with the board. Holy shit. 
Yep. I can't decide if I think that's brilliant marketing or if that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I think the answer to that is yes and. Um, yeah, yeah, I, right. I do like the idea, though, that they issue a rata and you have to buy like a new token. Oh, like, my God. Be, oh, my God. Yeah. So and it's got some shitty 3D art with uh, a large breasted woman walking around that is also like shitty 3D art plus kind of cell shaded. I'm not quite sure huh. what to take from it. Do they link the book here too? I don't even, I, I got me, too wrapped up looking at the glyphs. Exactly. So, I mean, exactly. They have, a, they have a page on, on their website just called the glyphs. I mean, at that point I'm, oh, R gen manual. Is that what? Yep. There's a pretty amazing Oops. cat breathing fire. Um, <laughs> so that exists. Was this kickstarted or did this I have this? no idea. Is well, this one of those people who created the game and then like they have 700 copies of it sitting in their basement waiting for people to discover that they have this crazy thing they've made? I have no idea. You can get it on drive through RPG though. So okay. so that exists. Awesome. Um, what does it run for? Glyph RPG. Character. Digital edition. Wait, yeah, video it's, tutorials. It's zero dollars and zero cents. It's not even pay what you want. That's wild. It is completely effing free. I guess if they know you're going to have to, like, if you cannot play the game without that exact thing, then I guess that that's, that's a pretty fair way to do it. <laughs> I think you conclude your way together by having, like, a whole bunch of D6s or D8s or whatever, whatever you need as the thing. Yeah. So that, that exists. Yeah, there's a whole YouTube channel where they describe how the, the game works. I think, I think that's what I'm looking at right now. Well, maybe when you and I get tired of all of our other projects, we just say, fuck it. And we play a game of glyph and we throw down and go. we finally settle. Who's, who's the true <laughs> man or whatever superlative <laughs> attribute we're trying to, to do. I love the polarity glyphs where you're like, what? This is a rabbit hole. Uh huh. Like tell. The there rab- are 26 chapters in this. The rabbitest hole. 26 chapters, one of which is just apparel. Uh-huh. Which can probably all be randomly generated. There's also a one-page quick reference. So that's the a thing. The character sheet has a prime multiplier spot. Uh-huh. What's that mean? <laughs> what, <were> we- <laughs> what am I doing with my life? <laughs> Exactly. This is one of those things where you, you, you either look at people like, ah, the People Magazine 30 under 30, and you're like, ah, they've I could never catch up with them. But like then you look at the, the single human that like where this game sprang fully formed from their head like fucking Athena, and you're like, yeah. I I've never had a good idea in my life. <laughs> yeah. Yep. yeah, this is wild. There's a there's a lot of information in their there, one Yahoo page here. There is <laughs> There is a lot of information here. I just kind of want to be like admin at glyphsrpg.com. Are you okay? Yeah. Sincerely, Terry and Noah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but you know, you know what would, would cause my head to literally pop off if we like clicked on one of these and it was like any award winning. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> or that would be so good. Or if there were like an opposite of the Ennies, like the, Ooh. what is it? The Ignobels. 
or like the golden oh, raspberries yeah. or something like that. I wouldn't do that to a person. Obviously they've sunk a lot of time into it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of those things where I don't think anyone like, unlike big industries, <laughs> the smaller parts of the industry aren't making enough money for it to kind of be like rolling off your back if if you're being made fun of in that way. Yeah, that, if that <laughs> happens, that, that is the dagger that is also stabbing you. But I, I may get one of these tokens just in case. And, and I mean, I feel like I'm just going to wear it as a necklace. Like, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> it's got a hole in the It does, it me. does. I mean... And like then, that one time you meet someone who knows what it is, <laughs> then you can, then, then it's all over. I mean, you've made a friend for life, right? I mean, like, <laughs> or you have to fight them. Like, I don't know, oh, like, yeah, like yeah. there could only be one weird ass token yeah. necklace wearing guy out there yeah. in the world. Uh, Maybe that's the real truth of the game is that like the last oh. chapter, it describes that like, actually, this is a Highlander token. And like, you know, the the whole, this is just a, a hidden conspiracy. Like you're going to have to kill anyone. That okay. Has so token. the game is actually part of an ARG where you <laughs> yes. have to become, okay. So that's the real game. Um, okay. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. What if these are Dragon Balls? Has anyone thought of this? We just need to figure out how to tap them. Uh, and then, and then their true thing, and then our hair will change, and then we'll spend yes. three episodes just mocking each other incessantly. Yeah, which yeah. I, that is exactly what happened. So that's one of those things where, like, I wish anime had been explained to me differently, like as a child, and like, oh, it's pretty awesome. They got super strong and they beat each other. But like, from what I understand of Dragon Ball, it's much closer to like just people dragging each other and being as as diva-ish as humanly possible and no one ever actually dies. It's much closer to Paris's burning than the Highlander from what I understand. I don't know if that's That's, that's probably true. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's ball culture but for people with with hair or something like that. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> I'm probably offending I, literally everyone by saying it. Yeah, I mean, who, who knows? I, <laughs> the only thing that I, I can ever really say when it comes to DBZ is that the, the people who did DBZ Abridged pretty much did a better version of the entire show. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> if you've never seen it, I don't know if you, it sounds like you haven't watched DBZ. Either, no. I, I certainly did when I was a kid. And I can say that that it was it was fun as a kid, but the abridged version of the show, is it's entirely... Uh, it's a team of voice actors redoing the show and it's amazing. You don't have to know anything about DBZ. I would just watch that. Just go watch DBZ abridged. It's so funny. Noted. I will, I will investigate that. I yeah. will, I, I, it's, I will, it's hilarious. I will finish watching Star Trek discovery and then maybe I will give that, give that a view and see what happens. <laughs> I think it'll all, it would still be fun. Even if you haven't watched the show, I think I, still, I can it, piece it together. I, I might have well, to wiki very, some things, yeah. but I can get yeah. there. It's it's funny. It's mostly it's mostly comedic more than anything, and that's that's where it starts a little. I mean, it, you, you know, check it out. It'll it's it's a thing. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. So I have my yeah. homework, uh, yes. and and with that. This has been Mage the podcast. Where if we had mastery of time magic, we would go back and do things differently. Actually, we wouldn't because the paradox rules for doing that is quite punishing. The show is made possible by our executive producers who include, these are all New Year's traditions from around the world based on a random internet article I found and they're all likely wrong. Anyway, Ben Bendelow, Oracle of the Philippine tradition of wearing polka dots and eating round fruits. Buck Gregory, Oracle of the German tradition of eating marzipan in the shape of a small pig. Christopher Phillips, Oracle of the Estonian tradition of eating 12 meals on New Year's to, so that you have the strength of 12 men. 
Guy Stewart, Oracle of the Icelandic Tradition of Lighting Fireworks and Burning Out the Old Year. Jay Widener, Oracle of the Brazilian Tradition of Wearing White While Jumping into the Ocean. Josh Hillerup, Oracle of the Canadian New Year's Tradition of Ice Fishing. I just made that one up. Mikhail, Oracle of the Mexican Tradition of Walking Around with an Empty Suitcase. Pukuchi, Oracle of the Scottish New Year's Tradition of Symbolic Gift Giving and Reading Auld Lang Syne. Sean Gallagher, Oracle of the Spanish Tradition of Wearing New Red Underwear. The Crew of Erebus, Oracle of the Greek Tradition of Hanging Up and Smashing Pomegranates. Saint UX Player, Oracle of the Danish Tradition of Jumping Off of Furniture to Leap Literally into the New Year. Again, I just got those from a random internet article. I'm sorry if they're stupid. Additionally, thank you to Archmaster Andrew Adelstein, Archmaster Brad the Blue, Archmaster Dan Svensson, Archmaster Derek Semsick, Archmaster Leroy Bryce, Archmaster Morgan Aran, Archmaster Nathan Weaver, as well as Alex, Alexia, Ambiversion, Anders S, Anon, Baderfi, Birdo, Blaze Hibbert, Blake Ryan, Brandon, Bryce Perry, Bubba the Pale One, Chris Blake, Sin Shodas, Daniel Cuppin, Daniel Scribner, Darren Hennessy, David Roy, Dennis Osborne, Eli Levenger, Eric Schwenk, Fraga Rock, George Laura, Friedrich Al, Henry Kraft, Ia Bolt, Jason Kennedy, Jason Vines, Jason W. Briggs, Jay Gatsby, Jeff Brin, Jenna F., Jervis Johnson, John Magnuson, Jolyn Andes, Lawsonstoff, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halperin, Chris Kinner, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Prohl, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Nibero, Neil Patterson, Nikita Klamanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick McNamara, Patrick Mulder, Rachel Grace, Ricardo, Richard Bat Brewster, Robart the Robot, Ruben Joseph, Ryan Stray, Rob H., Ryan Kendi, Samuel Tobin, Starfish, Stephen Carton, Thrice Great, Vincent Hamilton, Walter, William Conley, and William Martin. I'm not doing an EP shout out this week because this is a been a weird episode, and I don't want to shortchange anyone. Rather listen on YouTube, search Mage the Podcast on YouTube to find our full library there. If you super like this episode or super didn't, drop us a line at magethepodcast at gmail.com or at Mage the Podcast on Twitter. We have a hop and Discord community at discord.me slash Mage the Podcast. Mage the Podcast is also on Mastodon at dice.camp slash at Mage the Podcast. If you like us, please give us a review on the platform of your choosing or tell a friend about us. Also go to magethepodcast.com for show notes and all of our previous shows. Now go change reality. Bye.